You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mean O'Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. All right, all right. Check it out, check it out, check it out. Welcome, Black. Black like I never left. Black AF, black as ever. This is your main man, Carl Payne, with another episode of Black Arm of the Law. Today's guest comes to us by way of New York City. New York City, New York City. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome retired DA assistant special agent in charge, Mr. Nixon Frederick. Tell me a little bit about where you're from. So, from Brooklyn, New York. I was uh, born in London, grew up in New York, so considers myself a staunch New Yorker. Grew up in Brooklyn, now we live in Queens, you know, and uh, also stayed, we lived overseas in Thailand for about 11 years. How long was it, were you uh, in London before you came uh, here? I was two. Do you go back often? Every, I've had a bunch of trips to go with the family. I've had a couple of personal trips and I've had trips on the job. Mm. Every single one of them was canceled or postponed for whatever reason. My relatives are always cursing me out because I don't come to visit them and they always come to the States. And I was like, you know what? I must, I'm just not meant to get there right now. So whenever I can get there, I will. So now, now, are your parents of Caribbean descent? Yes, they're from Grenada. Do they have accents like English accents or Grenada? So my, my mother had a heavy British accent. My father That's... had a heavy Caribbean accent. When I was in college, my friends would come, you know, we'd come home for the weekend. My mother would cook all his food and what have you. My father would sit down for an hour and tell us stories and laugh and joke. He would walk away. They'd be like, yo, what the hell did your pops just say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? I was like, he was talking English. Y'all don't understand? My filter's different because that's my father. You know, yeah, yeah, I yeah, listen yeah. to him all the time. So Do, do an impression of your mom. I got to hear the accent. Just do it. Oh, so, bro. Son, can you bring me a glass of water, please? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, water? I said, we don't have water, mom. We got water. If you want water, I'll bring you some water. She's like, oh, damn, all of that? Yes. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Uh, and they're, they're both uh, still with us, yes? No, my father passed of a year after I got married back in the 90, early 90s. And uh, thank God my mom's still here. Well, that is, that is good as well. Okay, so Brooklyn, London, Thailand, Queens. So I, I assume you speak fluent Thai. Yes, yes, I do. Now, how hard was it to pick up that language? So the hardest language is to learn. The DEA sends you to language school when you're going to particular countries overseas. Once you get there, you get an orientation for a day, and then they stick you in a law enforcement group unit, and they push you out and wait for results. You know, so for the hardest languages are Arabic, Thai, Chinese. Those are the hardest ones. And Thai was school for nine months. Why is that considered the hardest? Like, what makes it hard? So every every word has five different pronunciations. They have, I'll give you an example. Ma, tini, ma, means come here. Ma is dog, and ma is horse. Get sh- stop, stop. <laughs> okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So it's the inflection of your voice? Yes. Is what? 
Yep. They have rising yeah. tones, falling tones, high rising, falling, low tones, and no tones. All tone. right. All right. Let me hear it again. Let me hear it again. Ma tini. Ma tini means come here. Ma. Ki ma. Ki ma. Do you ride a horse? Or tell me ma. Tell me ma. The, he has a dog. Wow. New Yorkers would be true. Everybody in New York is ma. <laughs> What's up, ma? What up, ma? Yay, ma! Yo, you can't go, yo, yo. <laughs> yeah, man, it, 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 it was a tough language, but you know, I come from a Caribbean family, and I have to face my mother before I have to face anybody else. So I had to come out of that school. You you go to school for nine months, you get three exams, you fail one, can't go. Are you serious? Yep. So I made sure I had to make mom proud first before anybody else. That's what's up. That's what you got. Siblings? Yeah, I got one. I have a sister. Younger or older? Older. Ooh, how much older? Four years. Wow, okay. So what was that like? I mean, I guess like every brother and sister, um, we got along together. We I, <laughs> fought fought like devils and loved each other to death. When I was when I was sixteen, she used to grow her nails just for me. Scratch we used to get into fights. I had scratches all over my chest and what have you. She was a girl, so I didn't really as I got older, like in my teens, I didn't really want to hit her because I didn't want to hurt her. Right, right. One day, one day, I'm chilling, doing my homework, doing what I'm supposed to do. She keeps messing with me. She's messing with me. She's messing with me. I said, look, I said, stop bothering me. I'm not in the mood. I have things to do. She still keeps going. I stood up. I punched her in the middle of her chest just hard enough to let her know, leave me alone, but not hard enough to hurt her. And she was she like, your ass. No, she was like, she was like, you, you, you can't use karate in the house. Because <laughs> I studied martial arts back then. I was like, look, right. you hit it, you hit it with the Bruce Lee six inch. There you go. Well, I hit it with the Bruce Lee half inch because if it was the six inch, oh, mom right, would have been right. mad. <laughs> right, right, right. So when, when did you start taking martial arts? Man, I, I started out with Aaron Banks back in the day in Manhattan. He used to do all the fights in the felt form that used to be right next to the Madison Square Garden. Yep, he did a lot of stuff with um brother that was in Bruce Lee's movie, uh Chuck Norris. Chuck, Chuck Norris. Norris. Yep, he used to come down to the school every now and then and talk to right? Uh karate. Gozuru karate. karate is what yeah, is what we studied. Okay. And then, you know, dabbled in a little bit of judo, a little bit of um jujitsu, and then I found a jujitsu school here in New York. It's V Arnest Jiu Jitsu with Professor David James, which is one of the old head masters who's thank God who's still around. And my wife, my two kids, everybody trained. Out of all the uh, martial art forms, which one do you find the most? Which one do you like the most, I should say? Which one resonates with you the most? So for me, it's I, I'm, I studied when we moved overseas the first time in 2001. One of the senior belts out there introduced me to this uh, Aikido instructor. And I started, I fell in love with it. We went to Japan. We would go to Japan every year for seminars and competitions and so forth. And to watch a sea of 500 black belts doing sword work was just amazing, amazing. So for me personally, Aikido and Jiu-Jitsu. But you know, everybody has their own their own choice. Those are mine. What is it about Jiu-Jitsu? Jiu-Jitsu is the prof very practical. The self-defense portion that he teaches is whatever he shows you. If you work out with him for two or three hours, you can use that on the street right away. You don't have to go and do 10,000 kicks. You don't have to go and break bricks. You don't have to wait for your neighbor to come out at two o'clock in the morning and practice your stuff. <laughs> it's very, very, very practical, very realistic. And thank God he's still around and he's located in Brooklyn. 
Gotcha, gotcha. What got you interested in uh, in policing? So I went to I went to school in Boston and studied electrical engineering and was can a I, can criminal I just justice ask major. You, why would you go to school in Boston? Why Boston? So it was Boston was close enough to New York, but far enough away. I could have stayed in New York and went to school, but I couldn't. To me, I couldn't grow up to be an independent thinking man and person. So I chose to go away so I could stand on my own two feet. It's still it's still very racial in Boston. Yeah, I, I learned quick. So, you know, being from New York, we walk everywhere. So yeah. when I get to Boston, pack my stuff up one day, the weather's nice. I'm walking around, walk downtown, trying to explore and what have you. I cross this bridge, don't really know where I am. And then I see a sign that says Charleston. I said, okay. Walk a little further, there's a gas station. I stop so I can get something to drink. Walk into the gas station. It's like, excuse me, you know, how much is this this juice? And the guy looks at me, he's like, do you know where you are? And I was like, I'm like, is there cameras or something going on? I said, I'm just walking around, checking out different neighborhoods. He said, well, you need to go back where you came from. And I was like, man, get the hell out of here. I'm from New York. I can go anywhere I want to. Leave the store. Two minutes later, a police car pulls up. I'm like, here we go. He pulls up. He's like, uh, what are you doing in this neighborhood? And I'm like, what do you mean? I said, I'm from New York, go to school, just walking around trying to, uh, you know, familiarize myself with the city. Yeah. <laughs> he said the same thing. He's like, you need to turn around and go back where you came from. And I was like, all right. You ain't got to tell me twice. What year was this? That was 1980. Wow. We used to go out to parties and a car would drive by with a bunch of white guys and you'd be like, nah, nah, shouting out the N-word and what have you, but they wouldn't stop, you know? <laughs> I had one experience in Boston and I was, I mean, you know, I've been there a couple of times before. I had one experience there and I was just like, one that kind of left me thinking, yeah, I'd kill somebody here. I got to get out of here. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I'll I, I probably end up in jail out here because... White people take too many liberties from me out there. Yeah. You know, they, yep. this is a very entitled city. Very, very entitled. Yeah, so that's was, why when I graduated, I was out. Yeah. You know, I came back. So, but, but what got you interested in policing though? Like, was there an incident? Was there anything specific, you know, that happened in your childhood? When I was growing up, I wanted to be either an electrical engineer and build trains and train stations, or I wanted to be a detective. It was one of the two. So I was going to go to law school and, um, and this had nothing to do with TV shows you saw or nothing. You just was like, Hey, I think I want to be a detective. Like, where's that come from? Of course. I grew up on Miami Vice and, you know, things like that from back in the day. <laughs> so you wanted to be Tubbs. Is that what happened? You wanted to be Tubbs. Yeah. You wanted to, yep. be, you wanted to wear fluorescent suits. You was Caribbean. You wanted to have your little taco meat hanging out. You wanted to have little shirts with your chest. It was part, it. It was part of the inspiration. So now, now, yeah. now and, they, and they were cool as hell. They were, they were, it, they were. But that sound, you know, but that's the thing I, we talk about a lot of times on the shows, like how, you know, you find yourself in these real life situations and you realize, hey, this ain't TV. <laughs> you know, when, when you find yourself sometimes, in, you know, as a, as a uh, officer in these real life situations that you've seen on TV, it's a lot different when you're actually in them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You know, growing, like I said, growing up in New York and, you know, being young and full of piss and vinegar and thinking that you're invisible, you think you know everything. 
right? Because if you can live in New York, no place else is as dangerous or or has the things that it had. I mean, New York was 24-7, you know? People from Brooklyn didn't want to go to the Bronx. People from the Bronx wouldn't come to Brooklyn. Everybody went to Manhattan to hang out. You know, Staten Island was soft. Queens was 50-50, you know, at the time. So, um, you know, it, you get that street toughness. And um, thank God the gift of gab, which has helped me a lot throughout my career. So where did it start? You went to the police academy first. Did a detective or DEA come first? So I was, I started out as a civilian investigator with the New York City Department of Investigation, which does, which is like the inspector general's office for the city, you know, when they have corruption or crimes or things of that nature. Then from there moved to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office in the investigation division and which is the same as law and order. Same thing. That's mm. what it was based off of. Yep. So I was there for almost 10 years, left there. And then while I was in the DA's office, I was an investigator. I got assigned to be in the Drug Enforcement Task Force. So got to got a chance to work with them and see what they actually did and how they did stuff and what have you. And I really enjoyed the work. You know, I really enjoyed the work and was fortunate enough to end up getting a job as a special agent and uh, able to do a lot of things in my career. What made you want to move from one position to the other? And is there and, and is there a position that you actually liked better than the other? I would have, if I had to do it again, I would do it again exactly the same way that I did it. I got a lot of it. So when I got to the DA's office, they, I got to work in labor racketeering, in rackets, in traditional organized crime, working on the mob and so forth, domestic violence and homicide unit. The homicide investigation unit was full of detectives that had first and second graders, had 20, 30, 35 years on the job. I got put in there as a detective when I was like 26. So I was like a kid to them. And thank God I was because they taught me a lot, you know, taught me how to do interviews, taught me how to speak to people, how to do investigations and so forth. So that really prepared me to go on to work in the DEA because I had seen a lot of what had gone on before uh, and then started doing stuff on the international level with the DEA. So was there any, uh, is there a specific case? Obviously, I'm pretty sure you can't mention names. Or, you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether you can or not, but, you know, you know, if there's a story that you can tell me, one of, you know, what's a case or something interesting that stands out? I'll tell you, the first time done a lot of undercover over the years, almost 25 years, played everything from a crackhead to a CEO. Is that what made you want to get into acting? So I wanted to do voiceovers. I have a hundred characters inside of me. I always want, I always Buzz Lightyear. I was like, when my kids grow up, I want them to sit there and watch Buzz Lightyear with their friends and hear my voice because I thought it would be cool for them too. So I always wanted to do that. And when I came back and when I retired and started, um, my own private investigation firm went back, started taking voiceover lessons. My coach had told me that the business had changed. I had to get acting lessons, do improv and so forth. And while doing that, got exposed to getting some on-camera work and then started getting more of that than the voiceover work. So trying to you know, take advantage of both worlds. Back to the cases. You played everything from a crackhead to a CEO. Yeah. So my first, my first undercover case, my first case is an undercover with the homicide unit. We're up on 145th and Edgecombe. And back Ooh. in the day, back back then, you know, if you walk down the block, there's 100 people pitching, 100 people trying to sell you drugs. 
right? Mm-hmm. Yellow cap, black cap, this, that, this, that. If you if you don't buy from one person, they're trying to fight you. And this person's trying to take your money. It's all kinds of craziness, right? They got all the crews out there and so forth. So I went up there with somebody else who was going to do an introduction. I was supposed to make a small buy. It's supposed to be an ounce of Coke and I think um, about two ounces of marijuana, right? At the time, an eight ball and an eight ball. So we walk down this. I have somebody that's, that's with me. We walk down the street. One of my teammates, team members is watching me. They call him a ghost. They're the person that's supposed to see where you are and let the team know what's going on. Because back in the day, even now in some places, you can't pull up on a set. Right. As soon as you do, they got kids on bicycles. They got people in the windows. They got the old ladies that have been there for 30 years. And they'd be like, why are the police here? And so forth. Right. So they know who's supposed to be there or not. So me and this guy go in. He introduces me to the person that I'm supposed to do business with. The guy's like, all right, come in this house. We're going to take care of the stuff. And I'll, they told me, don't go in the house. So I didn't go in the house. I was like, no, nah, I can't go in the house. I said, well, I'm going to wait out here. And while we're waiting out there, you know, people are coming up saying, yo, man, yo, man, look. You know, I got the good stuff. Don't talk to him and this and that. And the guy's like, wait, 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 wait. He said, sit in my car. I said, you sit in my car. I'll go inside, get the stuff. Don't get out the car. Don't talk to nobody else. I said, all right. So me and the other dude, we sit in the car. Guy goes in the house to do what he has to do. So now I'm like, oh, bet. I'm in a car. You know, it's a conveyance. Anything that's used to further a drug transaction can be seized. So I'm like, all right, maybe I get my first seized vehicle. So I'm in the guy's glove compartment trying to... I'm reading off, I have, I'm wired up, right? I have uh, the guy's name and I'm reading off the name and the address and there's tickets. I'm reading off everything I can get and then stuff everything back in the glove compartment and, and then just sit there waiting for him. So he comes out, gets in the car, we do the deal, count up his money, give it to him, everything's cool. We get out the car and we're walking back to 140, to walk, walking back to Edgecombe. Turn the corner, going up the hill on Edgecombe, and now I'm the man. It's my first buy. I did the deal. I'm from Brooklyn. I'm the man. You can't tell me nothing. I hear footsteps. You know, somebody running behind. So it's wintertime and it's cold. So I got on a big coat. The guy that's with me has on a big, big bomber jacket. So he moves over and I move over to let the person run by us. The guy who's running comes up, grabs the guy I'm with by the back of the, his coat. And starts punching him in the back and he's cursing him out. And I'm like, I'm standing there like, first I'm like, what the hell is going on? Right? And then I see feathers coming up. And I'm like, what the? Guy's got a knife and he's trying mm. to stab the guy that I'm with. And I'm like, I have them. So I'm calling out. I'm like, we got a problem. We got a problem. Roll in. Because they said if anything happens, you know, the cavalry is going to come in and so forth. We got a problem, roll in. We got a problem, roll in. Nothing. Crickets. My first buy. So now I'm like, they told me, you know, when, if something happens, don't worry about it. They're going to come in, put everybody up on the wall, arrest me too, separate me, and then, you know, make sure I'm safe and so forth. Nothing. So now I'm worried that the guy's going to stab the guy I'm with. So finally, I there was a signal that I was supposed to do in case none of the equipment was working. I don't want to tell you exactly what it was, but I did that signal to the point where it, I did it, I did it almost exactly three, four times in a row. Nothing. Crickets, nothing. So now I'm like starting to get angry. So 
I pull out my gun and I chase the guy. I'm like, blood clot, what the hell are you doing? And chase the guy off. Right? So now I'm like, what's going on? So grab him and now I'm rushing to get back to my car because I think there's a problem. Right? I still got what I bought and what have you. Get mm-hmm. to the car, turn on the radio, start driving. I'm like, hey, something happened. I said, they tried to stab my guy and this and that. And they're like, all right, we have a meet location that we're supposed to go to. Get back to that location. Get back to the location. I am furious. Exactly. What if it was me? Right. Right. They come up. There was, there was, there was an issue with them seeing me. When I walked into the block, they lost me. So they didn't see me come back out. Right. But I have the equipment and stuff on. The guy that's supposed to be listening to the equipment is, has headphones on. He's listening and relaying to the team what's going on. I curse out everybody to the point where I'm like, look, I will hand in my shield and be done with this nonsense because I'm not getting caught out there like this again. It's my first time out and this is what's going to happen. Right. But it, but it taught me a lesson. It taught me you go out to do stuff. You are on your own. You got to protect yourself. You got to look out right. for yourself. Until until you hear that sirens and all of that other stuff coming, you're on your own. You know. So, I mean, that's it. Really, really didn't get resolved. It's kind of like what? Well, so the guy a couple days later, the guy who was on doing the electronics and what have you, I I come into the office and I see a message. Go see such and such. So I go see him. He's like, hey man, I was listening to the tape. Hey man, you did everything you were supposed to. You did the calls and this and that and this. That's what he tells me. I wanted to punch him in his face. I was so mad. I was like, I know what I said. Y'all didn't come. <laughs> right, right. So you know? they lost you, but how did they lose you, though? The block had so many people on it. The person that was responsible for looking at me lost me. Yeah, yeah. He gets, he gets, he definitely gets punched in the face. He, yeah. he, he gets a punch. So because yeah. it's one thing if you're making the call and they don't even know where you are because they lost you. So they hear it, but they don't know where you are. But homie, you, you're supposed to be watching me. Yeah, you get you get punched in the face for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and like I said, it taught me at an early stage, you know, not to take stuff for granted. You know, I from that day I started. I went back to training in martial arts, working out. You know, we do cases, and they could go down to a bar and drink and stuff like that, and then go back to work the next morning and so forth. I was like, I'm going to the gym. I'll catch y'all later. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that, about, was, that uh, was a huge learning experience for me. What about any cases with the mafia? So one one of the ones that we worked on oh, when I was in the DA's office, they put me on a, a wire, right? A wire, you're listening into the conversations. These are authorized wiretaps where you're listening to the conversations of the of the different members. So the one guy that we're on, um, I had a, I could write this stuff down quickly, right? The guys would be talking and didn't have to do abbreviations or what have you. I would, you know, I had a good knack for that. So they loved me on the wire. All right. So I'm, lis- I'm listening to this guy and he comes in and he's like, you know what? Those goddamn N, he's using the N word. He said, those this and that and this and that. And I was like, what? F this guy took their heads off, phones off, threw them on the desk. Supervisor comes over. He's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, F this guy, I'm not listening to him. He could kiss my ass and this and that. 
He's like, calm down, calm down, put the headphones back on. I was like, I'm not putting the headphones back on. He's a racist so-and-so, what have you, because I'm taking it personal. I'm like, whoa, who the hell are you calling? <laughs> so finally I put the headphones back on, and um, you know, after following the guy for a couple of weeks, he says to one of his close buddies, he's like, you know what? He said, my worst fear is that they're going to come and arrest me in the middle of the night, all dressed in black, and that'll be it. So when it was time to take him down, they put me on. They put me on a horse team, dressed all in black, in the middle of the night. We took him away. Did so, you Did you tell him at that point? Hey, buddy, your worst fears are coming true. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> this is taking you in. Wow. No, some, sometimes you get some satisfaction. Was the moment that you told me about? Was that one of your scariest, was that the scariest moment you ever had on the job? That was my first. And I thank God that it happened that way because it opened up my eyes, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of, you know, some of the supervisors would say, well, you know, when you go in, you don't have to carry a gun with you because you're a black guy and they're going to think that you're there to rob them. And I would say, I'm a black guy who's going to buy drugs and I'm carrying a gun so that the drug dealers who have <laughs> guns don't try to rob me with their boys when I'm coming out. So they left, they didn't say no, that they left it up to me and I carried my gun, you right. know, I carried well, my gun. What so, was the scariest um, moment that ever happened? So I, I did, I had another undercover, uh, undercover case that we did, an investigation. The guys that were in charge of the crew, one of the main guys was away and we knew he was away. I went in, talked to the other people that were there and said, Hey, I usually deal with Joe. You know, he's my man. I come up, he takes care of me. I've been calling him. He hasn't been answering. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Joe, Joe's away. He'll be back in two weeks. I said, well, I can't wait two weeks. I'm here like usual. So one of the other guys comes up, talks to me, looks me over and what have you. And then he calls one of the other guys and says, all right, take him upstairs. So they take me upstairs. I know I'm supposed to go to a particular apartment. They take me in that one. Then they move me to a second one, which we already know about. So it's not a big deal. The door closes and all you hear is... <laughs> They got the, they had the supers that back in the day that they would hire that would reinforce the doors in cement. So you couldn't take them down with a ram if you were trying to bang the door down. They also had wooden or steel slats that they put behind the door. So even though you bang it on the door, the door's not coming off the hinges because it's fortified. The windows, they had razor blades and wire, razor wire and all that other stuff. So I go in and the guy, I'm in a little foyer. There's a guy with a 12-gauge shotgun. There's another guy, small kid with a 45. And they're standing there. And they said, well, we got to search you before you come in. I said, no problem. So I raised up my shirt. I said, hey, I'll just let you know I'm carrying. And as soon as I lifted up my shirt, bam, <laughs> the guy with the 12-gauge took my head on the wall. He's like, hey, what the hell are you doing in here? You trying to rob us, this and that? I'm what the hell y'all talking about? I said, I'm here to do business. I said, Y'all, I got to worry about your boys trying to rob me. So I pull out the money, which is in a, already rolled down. And I'm like, this is why I carry a gun. So I said, and, and then I start to get mad. I'm like, why the hell y'all treat me like this? I said, I come here all the time. I, had, I never had no problems. And now they're going back and forth. And they're like, now they're speaking all in Spanish, all in Spanish. And I can pick up pretty much. I used to speak Spanish pretty well until I learned Thai. And now I, I don't have to process Thai. But I still got to, I, now I got to process. You don't have to process, uh, 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 get out of here. <laughs> you don't have to process that. Saudi cop. So they tell me that 
the main brother, one of the main guys has to come up and clear me. So now I'm like, damn. So I'm standing. The guy, he won't take the gun off. He's got the gun to my head. I'm standing there in the corner. The other guy got the 45. And I remember the guy with the 45 was one of the shooters from some of the homicides that we were working on. So now I'm standing there like, fuck. I said, I can't believe. <laughs> I was like, I said, I can't go out like this, you know? So the other guy comes upstairs and I'm, now I'm pissed. And he walks in. I'm like, yo, man, what the hell? What the fuck? Why y'all treat me like this? This is business. I, I'm coming in here just to do my thing and go. And that's how you're going to treat me? He said, you know what? I said, I ain't coming back here no more. This is how things going to be done. He's like, calm down, calm down, yo. You know, we got to make sure and this and that and this and that. So they're going back and forth and back and forth. And he says, yo, man, why you bring a gun in here? And now I'm even mad. I said, what the fuck? Why, why bring a gun in here? What kind of business are we doing? This is, what kind of business we doing? I said, I'm, oh, I'm supposed to come up here with no gun and a whole bunch of money and drugs. And then when I walk off, you send your boys to go rob me? Oh, no. I said, he ain't going, that shit ain't going down like that. So finally the brother, he says, all right. He says, we'll do it, do the deal, but you can't bring the gun in. I said, no problem. I'm trying to turn now to go back out because I'm like, I'm out of here. <laughs> right. And he's like, no, nah, man, you can't leave because you're already here. And I'm like, oh. I said, are you kidding me? So I took my gun out. I unloaded it, took the magazine out, handed them the magazine, handed them the round that was in the chamber, handed them the empty gun. And my only solace was if they're going to smoke me, they ain't killing me with my own gun. You know, so give them the gun. They take me into the next room. They bring out the scale. They start wearing, weighing stuff up and what have you. And the gun I had wasn't a typical one for that time frame. It was a different color. Everything back in the day was black and dark and what have you. This one was gray and silver. So the guy's looking at it. And he's like, man, this, this is nice, man. He said, where you get that? I said, one of, you know, one of my boys was in the military. And every couple of months he came up and, you know, we go down to Virginia and get whatever we needed. I said, why? I said, you want some? I said, we can hook you up. You know, but it's gonna cost you. He said, "Well, how about this one?" I said, "I was now he wants to buy my service weapon." <laughs> and I was like, "Nah, man." I said, "I said my boss gave me that." I said, "That boy, that that thing has about five or six bodies on it, and I gotta make sure I know where it is." I said, "I can't even get rid. I can't even throw it away." I I said, "If you get jacked up and caught with it, and you're going to do time, and then you're gonna be mad at me," I said, "Nah." And after that. I would come back and bring, buy some beer, what have you. We'd sit down, have a couple of drinks and all of that. That, that was the scariest moment. I went home that night and sat down in the dark on the couch and was like, I must be out my motherfucking mind to do yeah. this crazy shit. Yeah. But part of it was this shit is, I got out. So I'm the motherfucking man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know? So it's, uh, it's both. You know, it's a little bit of both. So speaking of racism, did you experience any, uh, any, anything significant or, you know, that affected you in any way on your, um, within your journey? You know, so the, <laughs> the DEA has a 40 year lawsuit that's still running mm. with a black agent. A lot mm -hmm. of the other secret service, the FBI, a lot of the other agencies have had similar litigation and they've and they've uh, settled them. Ours is still running. So there's a, myself personally, thank God, I, I mean, you get little instances here and there, you know, some people are racist and you don't deal with them. I worked in New York and once I got to Chicago, 
I was, they had about, I don't know, 110 people in the office, if that much, and 10 of them were black. 10, 10 agents of color. That was it. So when I first get, I'm very friendly. I say hello to everybody, you know, everybody say hello. If they don't say hello back, that's one less person I got to talk to. So when I get there, I see a couple guys say hello. They just walk, shuffle and walk by. A couple weeks go by. I'm at my desk doing whatever I'm doing, and they come by. They're like, hey, Nixon, what's going on? How you doing? And I look up, and I'm like, oh, same clowns that wouldn't give me the time of day to say hello. I said, they must want something. I said, so what's up? Say, hey, we got this case, and we need this undercover. You know, we'd like to use you, and this and that, and this and that. And the way they had the cases set up back in the day, back then, is for you to get credit for a major investigation, you had to be a case agent, listed as a case agent. As an undercover, if you were the one that made the big deal and what have you, nothing. You know, you couldn't use that case, you know, to help you get promoted and all that other stuff. And, you know, a lot of guys would negotiate and say, okay, I'll do this for you, but you put me as co-case agent. And a lot of them didn't want to do it, you know. So I told them, uh, I let them give me all the details and what have you. And they were like, okay, we're going out on this date and this and that. And I was like, you know what? I'd like to help you, but that's something that was going on that day. You know, I was like, if you don't have the time to say hello to me, you can kiss my behind. <laughs> you know, but other than that, I thank God I've had a very good career. I can't very, very good people worked with on both ends and um, very fortunate. What is the gripe as far as black agents against the DA? Like, what's the main thing? What's so the, the main thing? thing, again, is not getting they won't not promoting us, not giving us an opportunity to get into the prime spots, for example. Mm -hmm to go overseas, right? I put in for, I don't know, maybe 50 openings before I got an, a chance to go to Bangkok. And the reason I got a chance to go to Bangkok was because the cases that I was working on, Bangkok was the source of supply as a country. So the country office knew of me. I went out there to do an undercover with them on one of my cases before. So that was what gave me the basis to get the opportunity to apply for that office. So I'm married, right? So I tell the wife, you know, I'm trying to put in for these offices to go overseas. It's a great, a great opportunity for us. She says, okay. I said, okay, you tell me where you want to go. I'll put in. She's putting down Italy, Spain, <laughs> London. And I was like, they ain't sending me there. They're not. They're not right. going to send me there. I don't have no connections. I don't have no boys. I'm not their boy. They ain't sending me there. So right. finally, Bangkok came through, and it turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to us. Everything happens for a reason, right? That it does. That it does. So now you hold various degrees uh, in in martial arts. So I'm a third degree black belt in Aikido. So Aikido is the art of the samurai. It was developed in Japan for samurais to use their weapons. For example, uh, you just, if you saw the movie The Last Samurai with um, Tom Cruise, mm -hmm. when he was um, taken prisoner, he watched them train and so forth. That's Aikido was built for you having a weapon. Aikido is a bone breaking technique. Every time, anything you put your hand on, you break. All right? It's you're taught uh, to use a staff, which is called a joe, um, which is about the size of a broomstick, if not a little higher, from the ground to underneath your arm. Boken, which is a wooden sword, a regular sword, which is a katana, and a tanto, which is a short sword. So, third degree black belt in Aikido, and it's also a defensive art. It's the only defensive art. And I 
thought it would complement my law enforcement work a lot because you're trying to control people and not hurt them if you don't have to, you know? So that worked out well. So studied Aikido. And then um, along with that, I got a black belt in Iaito, which is the art of the sword. So it's all sword katas and doing sword work. And then second degree black belt in jujitsu. I just got my second degree last year in December. So jujitsu is a combination of locks, holes, throws, and so forth. So the combination of the two of them is a phenomenal combination for me. Have you seen uh, recently the story about the uh, eight-year-old boy in Syracuse who was arrested for stealing uh, potato chips? Yes. What are your thoughts on that? So I, <laughs> so again, working in New York City and coming up in my career in New York City, when I was an agent working with the New York City detectives, New York City police officers, if there was a problem or an issue between two police officers, they put their gun and their shield and their badge in a drawer. They went down to the parking lot, which was right next to the headquarters. They solved their problem. They came back and nobody said a word. If we went out and there was a guy that was heavy handed or was doing something stupid or what have you, they'd have to deal with us first. The old head detectives, the old school detectives, would they wouldn't stand for it. They wouldn't stand for it. You know, so an eight year old kid, come on, be reasonable. To me, you know. So why, why do you think this is happening, though? You know what I'm saying? This is this is happening more and more and more and more, and it just seems like nobody's doing anything or saying anything. Well, it's two things. People are doing stuff and people are saying stuff, but the me, the news doesn't care. The news wants to show just the bad part, but they don't show how much hard work it is to have to train people and so forth. I'll give you a good example, right? police brutality and stuff that happened with that police officer with the eight-year-old kid. People are jumping on New York, defund the police, take the police off the street and what have you. Okay. So you take the money away from the police, you take them off the street. And then when crime rises, people are like, well, the police aren't doing their job. So like you, it's people are human. You know, you can't yell fire. You get there and you're like, okay, I got to put the fire out. And you're like, well, I don't want you to put the fire out yet. You know what I'm saying? They, you have priests that are pedophiles. Catholic churches and hiding them for, for years. You got teachers that are pedophiles and rapists and so forth. You have 40,000 police officers in the NYPD. All of them are going to be good? No. You're going to have good and bad everywhere you go. I've had people arrested in our units for drug dealing, prostitution, giving information to the mob. There's good and bad everywhere. You know, the training to me, it's just it's a it's a different time. I, I think it's not just the policing. I think it's people growing up in their families, the respect factor. It's not the same, you know, because you when I was a kid and you saw a, a cop in uniform, you had respect for him. You know, they were the cops. You had the bad guys. You knew if you did this, they would beat the hell out of you. So and they knew you by name. They knew your parents. So if you did something, they were going to your house, knocking on the door. <laughs> so it's i think it's not just one i think it's just a bunch of different factors that come into play and people are different nowadays you know it's like you know everybody's in on the phones and stuff like that it's like the interpersonal relationships it, it takes a lot to you have to develop those to be able to look somebody eye and have a conversation and talk to them and so forth what do you think uh, needs to happen for it to change so it's uh, to me it's not just one thing training is a big issue 
And the problem that you have with training is when you have a budget, being a law enforcement manager, when you have a budget and there's issues and there's problems and you need money to do stuff, the first thing they do is go to training and they cut the legs out from underneath it. Wow, that's crazy. Because, you know, because I mean, with these kind of stories and these kind of problems existing, it's kind of like, you know, the community is never going to feel that way about police, you know? It's, it's, you know what? It's, it's a never ending cycle. In, when I grew up, every police officer knew all the store, the people that, that worked that walked that beat. They knew everybody. Right. On a first name basis, you know, that's community policing from back in the day, you know? And the problem with today is with, all the corruption and people are cops are afraid to do stuff. It's like, do I pull out my gun? Do I not pull out my gun? And if you don't, you're getting blasted and somebody's going to have a funeral for you. If you do, you're too heavy handed. So it's, yeah, but but, but here's the problem though. So here's the problem with what you're saying. The problem with what you're saying is when you had, when, when police officers had the respect of the community because they were in the community, you know, and they were doing things in the community and they did know people by their names and that and so forth. And so that that was a mutual respect there where it was like you didn't have to be worried about that or think about pulling out your gun or wondering because it was like, you know, what I mean, it was it was, as you say, there was a, a mutual respect there. There was a there mm-hmm. was a different kind of relationship. But when you have these officers who aren't of the community, they, yep. they, they don't have any ties to the community. They didn't come from that type of community. You know, it's yeah, it's tough. I mean, some people, just like anything, some people are in the job for a paycheck. And then, and when you get a gun and stuck in your face for the first day, they're out. You know, being in law enforcement has one of the highest divorce rates, one of the highest suicide rates because of the stuff that you have to deal with and see every day. If you were in charge, what would reform look like to you? So if I was in charge, I would make sure that the officers that were on the street. And so right now you have a community a CPOP officer. You have a community policing officer that's responsible for different neighborhoods and so forth. And those are the ones that if there's instances, you deal with the police and then the CPOP officer was what they call them would come back and do stuff. If it was me, I would go back to the old days where if you're working 145th and Edgecombe, you got to know all the store owners, the people that you see back and forth on the street and say hello and so forth. I would make, hopefully make sure that the things were more personable. So that at least when the stuff is going down, you care about what's going down with the people that are there. And you somebody know? might care enough about you to save you. Exactly. Exactly. Cause it's a two way street. As a manager for the DEA, the state department has this program where they have five law enforcement academies strategically placed around the world. One is in Botswana, one is in El Salvador, uh, Roswell, New Mexico, Bangkok, of course, and um, in Europe. Wow, and I can't remember the one in Europe at this point, but that was, the one in Europe was the first one. So as the, as the manager of the academy, I run the academy with a Thai general, and we're responsible for 17 countries in the ASEAN community. And our main thing is, is we're training judges, police officers, and prosecutors to enhance their capability to do international crime and also hold their borders. So when stuff happens in their countries, it doesn't spill back over to the U.S. Plus, if you're here in New York, if you're here in New York and you have a case and it comes back to Asia and you call me up and say, hey, Nixon, you know, we got this uh, child sex ring and we're going to Indonesia and we got to go to Cambodia, you know, but we don't know who to reach out to. 
we go, I go into the database, pick out the people that we know that we've trained, that we can have been vetted and trusted and so forth and put them in touch. It's to develop relationships and cooperation. It's to, to give us the opportunity to be able to go to somebody and get information and know that you're not going to, you know, be worrying about officers being bribed and so forth. And also, you know, a teaching tool. Every federal agency came in and was part of it. And also the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and also the Australian Federal Police. And as part of that, you develop that core and camaraderie. You have 50 law enforcement officials from different countries that never had a chance to leave the country before. Never. But this opportunity through the State Department, they paid for them to come to get the training. And it was done simultaneously in their languages, which separated us from all the other academies. It wasn't just English and they had to know English to come. No, you're sitting there with headphones. If you're Cambodian, you're hearing Khmer. If you're Thai, you're hearing your Thai language. If you're from China, you're hearing, you know, Chinese and, and so forth. So um, that type of program is the type of thing that you do. And it's the it's what we do as law enforcement officials. It's that task force mentality because there's 5,000 DEA agents worldwide. 5,000. Is that enough to stop the war on drugs per se? No. So you use force multipliers, local police, other agencies and so forth. So as a manager, making sure that you're doing things in hand in hand with the community, like the police do a lot of stuff now, like the police athletic league. And, and, um, I know in my local precinct, one of the officers that was there, she used to every year when girls had to go to prom, she would go out and get all of these dresses donated and give them to the girls who couldn't afford to buy the dresses in prom. Do you hear about that at all? No, there's a lot of different things that go on to help the community. But again, the media plays a role in it, too. You know, it's both. And, you know, just the way like you grow up, if, if right, right is right and wrong is wrong. If you're a law enforcement official and you do something wrong, say it's wrong, own up to it and move forward. But everything is politics nowadays. You know, it's like, oh, I can't say I'm wrong because now my guys won't trust me and this and that and this and that. It's it's ridiculous, you know, on both ends on both ends so it's it, it's a tough business but it, it, to be in charge i would make sure community go out and know the people that you're working with and so forth hopefully those relationships like you said will help save a life on both sides that would be one of the main things but it takes not just the police it's everybody as a whole you know it's everybody as a whole just like drugs you can't you take the drugs off the street you still have addicts Addicts are going to go find drugs wherever they want. Right. You know, you got to have rehab. You have to have centers where they can, if you're going to help somebody and educate them, okay, then give them the education, but put in the, the structure where there's a health clinic where they can go to and everything that's there. Some neighborhoods do it. That's how the Black, that's how the Black Panthers were started. Right? The Black Panthers mm-hmm. were the first ones. They were doing it for our community back in the day. You know, they were yeah. the first ones to do it, you know. So tell us about your business now, man. Talk to me about your private eye business. Okay. So I retired in uh, 2018. When I came back, got a job as an inspector general with one of the city agencies and um, had some family circumstances right at the same time when they called me to come in. And I decided not to do it because I couldn't dedicate the time that I needed to do it. So started my own private investigation business and starting uh, acting in voiceovers. So now 
you know, uh, now I can write my own, do my own schedule and uh, do what I have to do with the family and so forth. So I've gotten a lot of good opportunities on the acting side and also on the voiceover side. How, how, and how long has your private practice been uh, up and running? Three years, both of them. Both of them in 2018. And what's the majority of the cases, type, type of cases that you work? Uh, marriage, infidelity, background, insurance fraud. You know, the typical, somebody gets hurt on the job and says they can't work. But you follow them around and they're bench pressing 800 pounds and they're doing backflips, you know, or they have crutches and they come out in the morning time from their house and they have crutches. They pull into a garage and change clothes and come back out and they're skipping down the street. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you get all kinds of stuff. And I know the uh, marriage infidelity ones must be kind of, it's kind of a sensitive subject, but in terms of like, you know, nobody wants to go through that part. You know, it's, I mean, you know, fraud. I mean, that's just how I feel, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. you know, insurance yeah. is insurance, right? You're going to get the money back yep. or whatever. Yeah. You know, but when you have to explain to someone or show them pictures or something crazy like that, it's like. Yeah. And I, I, and I tell people all the time, you know, it's not about the money. If this is information that once I give it to you, you can't put back. And then you have yeah. to decide, uh, you know, what you're going to do with your life. I have. One of them, it was an infidelity case, and it turns out that the mother was having sex with one of the children. Lord have mercy. Stepchildren, I hope. Oh, Lord. Oh, somebody help me. Yeah, yeah. So just, just when you think you've seen it all? Well, you know what, though? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard stories about that coming up. I've heard some stories, you know, where... It's, it's, it's usually the man, not 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 usually the woman, and you know, in that case, that has done something like that. Okay, let's wrap this up. <laughs> let's wrap this up. Okay. Um, you already told me your favorite one. Of, I guess you, was was Miami Vice your favorite show coming up? Miami Vice was one of them. Um, so I had a, a bunch of them, but Police Wise, Miami Vice, The Untouchables. If you had to pick a favorite, I would say Miami Vice. Yeah. So when the Bad Boys came out, I was like. <laughs> hilarious one last question sure ask all my guests this and this is obviously with a playful tone as well as a serious tone but mm -hmm. just to, just to you know give you a basis if there's someone from your past that you could arrest <laughs> who would it be and why you know from the girl who stood you up to the bully in school to whoever you know what i mean so growing up i'm in, in, in where I did in Brooklyn, there was a lot of guys that were... Um, you just said Brooklyn. That's enough on its own. Exactly. And <laughs> yeah, I, I know you see him in your face. I know you see him. You see him right now. I saw so you I, see him. I, I see more than one. You know, there was a bunch of guys that were just ruthless, mm -hmm. uh, I'll say, and um, didn't care about life, other people, and what have mm -hmm. you. And mm -hmm. um, it would have to be those that group of people that group right there and yeah. i see you seeing them i can see it in your face you saw oh, yeah. yeah 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 they you still got it. they still got some of my lunch money from back in the day i know you see what they're wearing i, yep. I can see it in your face yes 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 well I'll tell you what nixon man it's been wonderful having you as a guest today i enjoyed well, hearing your stories it's a brother. um i enjoyed you sharing with me today and sharing with us um your journey, you know, uh, I'm thankful 
uh, that you are still here, you know, to tell these stories, you know, because, um, you know, a lot of a lot of your brothers and sisters aren't yeah. and or weren't so lucky, so to speak, or blessed. But um, you made a difference out there, you know, and you continue to make a difference. And that's what's important. So thank, thank you. you. No, thank you. I appreciate you and what you do and uh, giving people a platform to tell their stories, you know, so that people that hear one thing all the time hear something else and be like, oh, they are human. They bleed. They breathe, you know. And um, like I said, appreciate all your work from back in the day and glad to see you still rocking and rolling. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. I, I, as I said before, man, this platform, you know, I love to give a voice to not only um, uh, retired or active uh, law enforcement of color, but it's also to help bridge the gap between the community and, and law enforcement. So we can get back to those days where, where, where we had mutual respect for each other and, and it was about um, protecting each other. One of the groups that you might want to reach out to is NABNA, which is the National African-American Black Agents Association, for DEA. They have a lot of information on cases that are, that are uh, litigation that's being done where agents, like, like I said, are trying to get promoted, trying to move, don't get treated fairly and so forth, or get blackballed, where somebody, we have an office of professional responsibility, where somebody of color would be dismissed right away where somebody who's not of color wouldn't be treated at the same time sometimes. So yeah, the fight continues that it does that it does. Thank you, my brother. Thank you, Nixon. For Thank you. Appreciate Thank you. you. Saudi cop, Saudi cop to all my Thai friends. Sour D cop. Sour D cop. That's right. <laughs> Black arm of the law is hosted by Carl Payne, produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Redd, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.